All right, good morning. Morning, River City Church. What's up? How's everybody doing? It's, it's a little chilly out this morning. Brian Robinson escaped. He literally went to Colorado. We lost another one to Colorado. He's out with Antley right now, so he put me in charge of speaking this morning, which I'm excited about. Um, hopefully he'll come back. Um, that'd be good. Um, it's really cold this morning. Any, any cold weather people in here? Like, you just, you can't wait for this time of year? Yeah, that's not me at all. I live in Florida for a reason. The cold takes away the anointing. So just pray for me this morning. Um, but yeah, we're, um, I'm Tim Downey. If you don't know me, I'm the ministry, uh, the student ministry director here at River City Church. And I, yeah, I love, I love our student ministry. And uh, I am so excited Cole Fowler is back there sharing his testimony with them right now. Um, super excited that I get to be here and share the word with you guys. Um, so we're, we're in an awesome stage of life. This is my wife, Melissa, in the front row with our six-week-old. We have a fresh, fresh baby in the house. Um, we aren't getting a lot of sleep right now. Um, so uh, just exhausted. I mean, I have to wake up so many times during the night. Every time Melissa feeds the baby, I wake up. It's not fair. You know what I mean? It's not fair at all. There's nothing fair about it. Um, so we're, I'm really tired, but God has uh, given me a, a message for today. But we're just, I want to just first say that for those of you who uh, have just supported us in the past six weeks, we're just so thankful for this church. Like this church has really come around us, brought meals, uh, prayed for us, and just been an awesome family in the middle of our transition. So I love you guys. We love you. We're so thankful for River City Church. Um, we're having a blast right now. We have three little girls under three years old. Um, don't ask me why. We won't get into that. Um, but we're having a blast. Uh, the stages that they're at, two and a half, one and a half, and fresh. I mean, they're just awesome stages. Um, one, one uh, I'll just share with you the one moment that I really loved recently. Because, like, Ellie is just at that age where she's starting to say a lot. And she's just, she's using every word she knows, our two and a half year old. So, like, she just inserts words into her sentence. She's like, my, gran uh, my, my uh, mother-in-law leaves, her grandma leaves our house. And she's like, no, I don't want grandma to leave. I, I want to play with grandma all five day long because five is the biggest number in her mind. And she's just throwing, she just throws words together. She calls me her crazy little silly daddy big boy man. Like, she, she calls me crazy stuff. Sparrow, on the other hand, you don't know what she's talking about at all. Like she's at that, that beautiful one and a half stage where she's talking a lot, but nothing makes sense. And so I, I was, we were leaving my parents the other night and we, I was getting in the car to, uh, to leave, but my dad stopped me. So I'm outside the car talking with my dad and I hear, I hear Indy start crying in the car. Melissa's somewhere else and Indy's crying and Sparrow's buckled into her car seat. And I just hear from inside the car, daddy, baby dying. Baby dying, daddy. And I'm just like, what is she doing right now? But she's trying to say the baby's crying. But, you know, a lot of confusion there. Um, but uh, we're, we're also kind of at that stage with Ellie where, as parents, we're trying to figure out how to set up boundaries with, with our kids. And, uh, it, and it's tough. When they get to two and a half, that's when they start asking why. If you've ever had a two and a half year old, that's when, that's when the why question starts coming out. And so you're like, 
why do you even have to ask me why? Like, I'm your parent. Like, I make the rules. Like, this is my house. You know, you just want to, but, but it's awesome. Like, she wants to know not just that she has to do something, but why it's important. And of course, um, then you start kind of realizing that, like, most of your rules are really about you and your comfortability. Like, I don't want your grimy hands on our wall, like, because then I'll have to clean it. You're like, dang it, that's not really a good reason. Like, I should really have rules that, like, benefit her, you know, and, like, protect her. But a lot of our rules are, are kind of selfish. But um, so I was thinking about uh, this morning, and, and we've been talking about um, Christology, which is the study of Christ and his person, his nature, and his work, you know, what he did. And I was just thinking about that idea of just like following rules for rules' sake and how sometimes we get into a place where we just kind of go through the motions. And I didn't know Ed was going to mention that as he led us in communion, but I thought today was a perfect picture to talk about this because it's just the idea where we, we remember it, but you can get into a place where you just kind of, you just do it and you don't really think about it and you don't really know why and you don't, your heart doesn't really connect with it. And... Uh, it's what God put on my heart this morning to share. It was this idea of like following rules without thinking about who or what it benefits. And so today's message, if it had a title, it would be that Jesus frees us from dead religion. That Jesus frees us from dead religion. And I, I want to read a passage that um, kept coming back to me, and it, it, it's kind of obscure. And as I was studying it and looking at it, I was like, How do, what does this have to do with Christology? And then the Lord started showing me that it had everything to do with Christology. And, and honestly, anytime you just open the gospel and you read about Jesus and you learn about Jesus and, and you think about him, like you're going to discover something about who he is. Even if it's just one thing that he does in his ministry, you'll discover something about who he is. So I'm just going to, I'm going to start um, in Matthew 12 and Actually, I'll just, I'll just invite you. Uh, will you pray with me for a second before I begin? Thank you, God. Thank you for this service, God. I thank you for every person here, God. I thank you that you have a word for us this morning, God. I pray that you would uh, speak through me, God. Would you match my weak and often stupid words with your power, God, and your presence? Uh, Lord, I ask you that you would come through God, as we read your word and that you would come through in our lives, Lord, and you would use truth to ground us in who you are so that we can find out who we are. Thank you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, so uh, we're going we're gonna to read this. I'm going to read this from, from the word I'm getting back to using like a paper Bible. You know these things still exist. Um, but I, I want us to put it up on the screen so we can read it together. And uh, in Matthew chapter 12, there is this this passage, and, uh, and I'm just going to just read it. So at, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. 
And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And before we, we kind of look at this story and dissect it, I just want to get paint a quick backdrop for what we just read. And before you really understand what's happening, you have to understand Jewish culture. You have to understand Hebrew culture. And one key element of Hebrew culture is that the way Israel, the Jewish people, related to God was through, mainly through the rules and, and the guidelines that he gave them through Moses. Okay, that, and it's not, not necessarily a bad thing. It's, it's the context that Jesus walked in and did his ministry in, and it was a crucial thing to know. And so what, when they're coming to him, they're coming to him with this idea that 613 laws were imparted to Moses. It's amazing. I'm reading this book, Basic Judaism. It's from a Jewish perspective. And this third century rabbi, Simlai, he says that 365 were negative prohibitions. And that number actually reflected the days of the year. They were these what not to do's. And 248 were these positive rules. They were um, related, correlated to the members of the body. They, they found that there were 248, I don't know how they added it all up, but 248 positive rules were the members of the body. Um, I probably broke 20 of those 613 just like on the way to church this morning or something, you know. Um, I know, I know that one in Leviticus 19.27 was that men shouldn't shave hair off the sides of their head. So I broke that two days ago when I got a haircut. Um, it also says that, um, you should let your, your, not shave off the edges of your beard. So uh, Pat, you're doing great. Josh Franklin, you're doing great, dude. You're keeping the law. Well done. Um, there's also one that says not to eat non-kosher flying insects. And so I don't know if any of you guys broke that, but if you did, we should talk because you got some issues. Um, so what's happening here? The, the disciples are going through. They're in this grain field. King James Version says it's a cornfield. I like that. Um, they're in this grain field. They're picking heads of grain, and they're rubbing it together in their hands, and they're eating it, right? And so you might be thinking, they're just eating. Like, what's the big deal with what they're doing? But check this out. The disciples, number one, they're harvesting grain. They're threshing it in their hands. They're throwing the chaff aside, and then they're eating prepared food. So in one mouthful, they're actually breaking like four uh, Sabbath laws, you know? And, and so, you, you, honestly, when I read this, you kind of have to wonder, like, what are the Pharisees doing out in the grain field? Like, why are they even there? Are they having, like, their weekly poker tournament or something, you know? Like, they're, but they're there, and they're seeing Jesus' disciples. And no, they're, they're looking for ways to catch Jesus. They're looking for ways to catch his disciples so they can say, aha, you broke the law, aha, you're a lawbreaker. And uh, the Sabbath for them was, was the cornerstone of the Israelite religious practice. Like it was like this pinnacle of their, their identity with God. And so to keep the Sabbath holy, we know, is one of the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 31, it says, if you work on the Sabbath, you are to be put to death. That's pretty intense. But then with it, how it fleshes out, it becomes kind of vague. You know, it's like, what, what is work? You know, what is it, what does work encompass? And so, because the scriptures don't give us all that that work on the Sabbath is, 
there are these, um, there are these commentaries that the, that the rabbis would create to then try to define what is some of the, the nuances within the scripture. And so um, they, they had, within the Talmud, they had what's called the Mishnah. I know I'm saying all sorts of crazy Old Testament stuff right now, um, but, but hang on. So they have the Mishnah, and these were these oral laws that came from the rabbis, and they were, they were supposed to supplement the scripture. So to like say, okay, well, because we don't know exactly what to do in this situation, I bet it means this. You know, and the council of rabbis are like, yeah, we can agree that that is what it means. And so this idea was you couldn't like reap on the Sabbath, but then they're like, yeah, but couldn't it also be like just throwing the chaff aside? That's also a sin. And so what they, what they do is they're crea- they create these, these layers of law around the law of God. And, and they're, they're basically creating these layers so that it be, virtually becomes impossible to do, to do these things. And so these religious extremists, some of the rabbis, would actually, they would choose death on a Sabbath rather than resisting enemies of Israel because that's how firmly they believed in not working on the Sabbath. They're like, you can't fight even if someone's out to kill you. And so it was this stubborn consistency that really kept them from being able to see Jesus and what he's doing. And uh, what's cool about this passage and what they're doing is their finger pointing comes in, in stark contrast to Matthew chapter 11, just before chapter 12, where Jesus says, and I think we have this too, he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so what he's saying is, take my mantle. He was, he, Jesus was a rabbi. He didn't have like the, the same formal training or accreditations that the others did, but he was saying, take my teachings, my yoke upon you. Because guess what? If you walk in my yoke, it's going to be a lot easier than if you walk in, in the Pharisees' yoke and what they're telling you. And he's saying, I will carry the load of this. And so Matthew was written primarily to Jewish believers in Jesus. And uh, one of Matthew's main goals when writing this, one of the synoptic gospels is he wants to show that Jesus actually did care about the Jewish law. He wasn't just trying to abrogate the law and just shove it aside and say, oh, none of this is important. And, and I think that um, we should know that, you know, in 1 Peter 2.22, it says that Jesus led a sinless life. And when it says that, I believe it also means that he was sinless according to the law, meaning that he kept every ceremonial and moral part of the law of Moses. Jesus also, we know, fulfilled the law. You know, he's not dodging the law, um, and he's not saying this isn't really relevant, it's not important, I don't care about it. He's, he's claiming the right to interpret it to undercut the legalism, which were those layers of, of rules and laws that were encircling the, the, the law of Moses. And so regardless of what the Pharisees are accusing him of, he, he's not breaking the law. And, and Jesus says in uh, Matthew five nineteen, he says, if anyone sets aside just one of the least of these commands and teaches others, they will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. 
That's pretty intense. But then he goes on to say, but your righteousness, if you want to be right with God, if you want to be righteous, it has to be even better than the scribes and the Pharisees. It has to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. That seems like a tall order. Um, so he wasn't, Jesus didn't, didn't think that keeping the Sabbath holy was legalistic. No, he actually, he believed in keeping Sabbath. But what he does is, he, do, he, he brings up several arguments in his most preferred style, which as Alan opened this whole series with, uh, with the first Christology message of who you say that I am, Jesus responds with a question, and he actually responds with multiple questions. And I personally love that Jesus asks so many questions, and, and he's not just pointing a finger right back and just saying, well, you're wrong. He's asking them. He's trying to help them get to the bottom of the truth. And so the first argument that he brings up is David, right? He says, there's biblical evidence showing that the law of need takes precedence over the ceremonial law. And so he points back to King David. He says, don't you know when King David was being chased by Saul, and Saul was after him, that he went into, into the temple and he ate the showbread. And the idea was he ate it on the Sabbath because that would be the day that they changed the bread out. And so he's on the run. And I don't know if Jesus had just thought about this before, but I like to think that all of a sudden Jesus gets this revelation because he's listening to Father. And all of a sudden he's like, oh yeah, hey, well, what about David? Remember what David did? And in fact, what David did would have been seen as even a worse crime because that bread had become sacred and holy it wasn't just normal bread on the Sabbath. It was sacred and holy bread. But he's like, hey, even David did this. But then the second argument he uses is about the priests. He goes, well, hang on now. We've got this rule about the Sabbath, which says that you can't work on the Sabbath. But he's like, but what about the priests? Don't you see all the work that they're doing? And so they would st stand self-condemned by saying you can't work on the Sabbath when they themselves are doing things like offering sacrifices and they're changing out the bread in the temple and they're doing all these things. And so he's saying, hang on, there's a little bit of a, there's wiggle, there's a little bit of wiggle room here in interpretation. And in, in, in the third argument, this is, I think, one of the coolest of all. He says, um, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. And in their minds, they're thinking, there's nothing greater than the temple. And here Jesus is saying, no, something greater. I am greater than the temple. And he's saying, the kingdom that I'm introducing, the kingdom of my presence, the presence of God on earth is even greater than the current practice of the temple because the temple was just a shadow and the law was just a guardian to lead us to fulfillment in Christ. And so he's introducing the kingdom of God. And then here's Mark's argument. So I just want to flip over to Mark for a second because this story shows up in three different synoptic gospels. In Mark 3.27, um, wait, is that right? No, it should be 2.27 maybe. Yeah, that's not right. I get it. Here we go. My bad. Mark 2.27. He says, um, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So this is Mark's argument. He's like, hey, let's go back to the beginning when God rested on the seventh day. 
What was he doing? And when he created the Sabbath, what was he inviting the people of Israel into? What was he inviting us into when he said you should keep the Sabbath holy? And what Jesus is suggesting is that the Sabbath, that man wasn't created for this theological demand of a God who just wants you to follow rules. No, he goes, the Sabbath was God's merciful provision so that you could find rest from your work, so that the servant could find rest. Even animals were to rest on the Sabbath, and it was in God's mercy that he says, I want you just to enjoy what I've given you. I'm not trying to, to, to just strong arm this idea, but then the last argument that Jesus brings up is probably the most controversial in the, things that the, the thing that the Pharisees would have hated the most, and it's when Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, when he says Son of Man, it could mean he could be referring to himself as, you know, a human. He's basically, in, in some sense, he, he, he calls himself the Son of Man 30 times in the book of Matthew. He says it even more in the book of Mark. It's his favorite self-designation. Like, it's his favorite title. Kind of weird. Like, I, I should come up with, like, a cool catchy title for myself, but no, only Jesus gets to do that, but he's like the son of man, and when he says it, it's like, okay, he's, he's human, you know, he's, he's a son of Mary, he's, he is the incarnated one, like he's in the flesh, um, he's, he gets excited, he gets happy, you know, there are times when he's pleased, but there's also times of pain, there's times of distress, there's times of suffering, and in fact, he uses the term a lot around when he talks about the cross and, and the suffering that he's going to go through. But uh, as, one, um, as one scholar says that um, the best doctor is the one who has been sick. That's, that's Jesus as the son of man. He comes to sympathize with us as our brother and as a son of Adam. But I think the main way that Jesus uses this term is a term of glory. That it's not just him talking about himself as a human I think he's also talking about the vision that Daniel has in Daniel chapter 7. And it says uh, in chapter 7, verse 13, One like the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not be taken away. His kingship shall not be destroyed. So Daniel has this vision of the future Messiah and the authority that he's going to walk in, and he has a vision of him coming on the clouds. Well, that's exactly what Jesus says that he's going to do at his second coming. In Luke 21, it says that he is, the Son of Man is coming on the clouds with great power. And so when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, we think of him as the pre-existent Son of God and Messiah. It's a term of authority that trumps all the authority of the Pharisees in that day. And so when we ask the question, who is Jesus? And when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? It seems that who Jesus thinks he is, is the divine Son of Man. Because he says it over and over again. And so it has this awesome double meaning where he's saying, I'm human, but I'm God. I'm human, but I'm Lord. I'm human, but I made the, I make the rules. And what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees here, whether or not they can receive it, is I made the Sabbath. 
I know what it's for. I know what it's supposed to be used for. And so I can overrule it. He's not actually denying the charge that, that they're bringing against him. He's bringing a lot of arguments, but he's actually kind of freely admitting, yeah, yeah, you're, you're kind of right. Like, maybe they did break, maybe they did break it, you know. But he's saying, but I, I get the right to interpret it uh, the way I want to, and, and it undercuts that Pharisaic legalism, and he's saying, I get to decide what the Sabbath is. I love that. What is he saying? He's like, I own it. I own the Sabbath in your face. Like, are you kidding me? He's going, I made it. Like, I get to do what I want with it. I get to do whatever the heaven I want with it. <laughs> Sorry, trying to keep it PG. All right, let's keep reading because the story even gets better. Uh, verse nine, in verse 9, and here they're, they're going to try to set Jesus up. Okay, so we're, we're back in Matthew 12. Okay, I've got to turn back. All right, so Matthew 12. And he says, he went on from there and entered their synagogue. And there was a man with a withered hand. And so the Pharisees asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they're not satisfied with his arguments. They don't really care. They're like, we're going to catch him right here, right now in front of everybody. And they said, is it lawful for, for, us to, for you to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. It's crazy, right? All, of, all the good reasoning, and there's still so consistent with, with the law. And so this man with the withered hand, that word withered is like from a, a, the, the word like a dried out plant. You know, it, it literally means like dried out, withered. So the idea is this guy probably had some kind of paralysis in his hand or some kind of muscular atrophy where he, it was withered, it was unusable. And uh, the Pharisees, they're just using this man. He's there with an issue and they just look at him and they're like, all right, let's catch Jesus. Let's just use this guy to catch Jesus in the act. And so Jesus sees right through what's happening. And, you know, the Talmud and the Mishnah actually created an, an exception that if your animal would fall into a pit and they were suffering, it says it's, you're good to, to, to lift the animal out. You're good to, to cause the animal not to have suffering. And yet the Pharisees see this man who's suffering. His hand is withered, and they're not going to make an exception for him. They're going to stay in their, they're going to go through the motions. They're going to stay in their current mindset, and they're not going to see this man. And so this tells me something about, about legalism, and I think we have to understand legalism. I hear it all the time. It's like, well, I'm not going to do that. That's legalistic. I'm not going to do that. That's legalistic. And it's like almost this idea that like Christians can just do whatever they want because, you know, all rules are bad and all rules are legalistic. And I think that's, that's not the right way to look at at the, the call of Jesus and the gospel and, the, and, the, and what he's trying to bring. But he is um, saying that heartless adherence to regulation or sticking to your personal moral code, your family rituals, your cultural norms, without seeing the people who are in front of you, 
seeing the needs of the people in front of you, saying that is when legalism is in full force. And so whenever we, we make it personal, we're taking legalism out of the equation. I, I'm having to do that right now with my two-and-a-half-year-old. And it's hard, you know, but I'm having to make it personal. I'm having to listen. And God does that too. God, he takes the time to listen and understand where you're at before hammering you over the head with a command. He will listen to you. He will say, well, tell me about this thing. How can I help you? How can I, how can I work with you? And the last thing I want to point out about this story is that when the man stretches out his hand, for so long, I just saw this passage as the man, Jesus saying, stretch out your hand, almost just like, reach your hand up, like, I'll put my hand on you, I'll pray, and then it will be better. But when Jesus says, stretch out your hand, what he's actually asking the man to do is, unhide your hand. So this would have been public embarrassment for this cripple to pull out his maimed limb and to reach it out. And so when Jesus asked him to do that, he's saying, I want you to exercise this confession of faith that I'm going to heal you, and I want it to cost you something. I want it to cost you something. And the man just, he stretches out his hand, and as he stretches out his hand, it's like the paralysis just leaves his hand. It's amazing that the man, Jesus calls the faith out in the man, and as he stretches out his hand, suddenly his hand is restored. And Jesus, whenever, whenever he brings healing, he's always saying, are you willing are you willing to, to, to pay the price? Are you willing to surrender that thing to me? You say you want healing, but are you willing to, to stretch out your hand? Are you willing to, to be humiliated in a sense? You know, of all the things Jesus could have been doing on his Sabbath, playing Xbox, <laughs> watching the Jags lose, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> Of all the things Jesus could be doing on his Sabbath, he is healing. And that's what I wanted us to see about Jesus today. When we ask the question, and when he asks us, who do you say that I am? We can say, I say that you're a healer. I say that you are willing to heal. And I say that you're a God of freedom, that you see our needs before you bring down the law on our lives. Now, granted, like, boundaries are good, um, but this is a, this is a message that, that it cuts to my heart because I like to be right. I'm just like the Pharisees, you know? I care, sometimes I care way more about being right than being righteous. I experience this a lot in my marriage where we're just, we're arguing, and I'm just like, no, I'm right. I'll just stay up all night arguing my point. It's like, I've totally forgotten about my wife in the moment or the needs of Melissa. I'm just like, I'm going to be right. And then God re reminds me, he's like, hey, are you, do you want to be right or do you want to be righteous? Do you want to be right or do you want to walk in my power and in my love? And so that's what this message is. It's, it's a message to all of us recovering Pharisees who need to hear that Jesus sets us free from dead religion, mindless religion, just going through the motions, just doing that, just raising your hands in worship because you feel like that's what you've got to do. That's what Jesus, he, Jesus comes to set us free from mindless re religion. Um, one thing that, that, that's come up that's huge right now in our, in our culture is Kanye West's salvation. Like it is all over the internet. It's crazy how much attention this is getting and it's 
It's kind of amazing just to kind of sit back and just read comments of both. Honestly, I'm one of those guys who like never weighs in on Facebook. I just read all the comments and laugh. (laughs) It's terrible. It's terrible. But like there's two sides of this Kanye thing. You got one camp that's like, yeah, Kanye saved. He is going to bring so much change for the kingdom. And the other side's like, nah, he's not a real believer. All this is going to fade away. And that's really sad. Honestly, I think about that side, and I think that that side that says, ah, oh, this, re- this isn't real. This isn't that, that big of a deal. You know, Kanye's, you know, look at his life. Look what he's done. They're calling out all the things that he's done in his past. But no, like, I believe God, God has changed Kanye. I just choose to believe it. Like, I choose to believe that God's done something great. And uh, that self-righteous Pharisee, it's got to die. You know, we've got to celebrate when anybody says yes to Jesus, when anybody turns to him and says, you know, Jesus is Lord. And, and I love what Kanye's doing right now. He's going around from prison to prison. They're doing prison concerts. And they're, uh, they're seeing salvation in, in prisons all around America. It's, it's amazing. And, and God can use anyone to do his purposes if you just lay down your right to be right and just say, God, like, use me, you know? David, in the Psalms, he reduced, he reduced all the commands of God down to 11 in Psalm 15. If you go and read Psalm 15, he reduces it all down to 11. And then, you know, you keep going, and Habakkuk reduces all of the commands of God down to one. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. And then Jesus sums them all up in two. He goes, everything hangs on this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. And so my message is just to us that Jesus, he's a healer, he's also a liberator, and he's called us to see the people in front of us and to prioritize them, you know, that we find our identity as we look at Jesus. So I just want to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray, and then we'll have a time of prayer ministry. Jesus, thank you so much that that you bring freedom, that you bring life, that that you don't hammer us when we mess up, but that you call us in closer. I thank you that you're here, that you're greater than the temple, that your presence is right here among us. Lord, I pray that you would show us yourself, the Son of Man, high and exalted, lifted up. And I also ask that you would show us how much you care as a Son of Man, as a human, as someone who can sympathize with us in our weakness. I just want to invite the prayer ministers to come forward. We're going to open up into a time of prayer ministry right now that if you want prayer for anything at all, doesn't even have to be related to the message I just brought, could just be something happening in your life, I want to encourage you to, to come forward and receive prayer. Jesus, we thank you for this time. We pray you move Holy Spirit. pray you would speak to us. You would call us up and transform us. In your name, amen.